Hey, this is Daryl Etherton, and welcome to Found. I'm here with... Jordan Crook is my name. Who is my staunch defender and permanent ally. <laughs> permanent. <laughs> By the treaties yeah, that we've signed. That I mean, this verbal contract is legally binding in the state of New York. It sounds mysterious, but all mysteries will be revealed when you hear our conversation later on. But Jordan, this is the show that TechCrunch and me and you have created to just talk to founders. And we've done a lot of that. We've done more of that maybe than... No, that's not true. I've talked to a lot of founders in my time, but not in this way. We've talked to founders in a very different way, a very personal way, a way where we get at a lot of stuff that's like really just practical, good advice about how to build a business, but also a lot of stuff that's just like empathy content for founders where you just want to listen to it and go like, okay, great. Other people are feeling the way that I'm feeling. What's cool about it is I think most of our conversations with founders outside of this podcast are very like task oriented, right? It's like, okay, I have to write a story or like maybe you're a good fit for one of our events or whatever. And it has like an end goal that you're trying to like suss something out to build this other thing. And like, this is the the conversation is the goal here. Yeah. So it goes kind of everywhere. And we've talked about how people feel. We've talked about what challenges them, what makes them feel good. We've talked about just like stuff that interests them that doesn't have to do with their product or building a company. I've loved it. It like I like that there's no end goal other than just enjoying that conversation. Yeah, it's definitely restorative to our souls, I think is how I would put it. Sure, yeah. As your defender, I agree. <laughs> this week on Found, we speak to Lee Honeywell, who is the CEO and founder of Tall Poppy and Lee is a fantastic person to talk to about basically like a, a problem that is worse and worse over time. Hopefully with the help of Lee and her company, it'll turn around. But basically she formed this company to deal with the increasing kind of harassment that is targeted at people with public personas that come about as a result of their job. So she works with companies to protect their employees from attacks on kind of like their personal accounts and their personal online identities, which, you know, sometimes go hand in hand with doing jobs like ours, like reporting. So Jordan, what did you think about our chat with Lee? I thought it was great. One, she's incredibly smart and insightful. So I feel like I learned a lot. Yes. But two, she comes at things with both a sense of humor and empathy. So, and I think it's very representative of Tall Poppy as a company. You can see how she's the one that built that product as people who use it. We do use it at Verizon. And it's like, Something that can be very obtuse and very like confusing and kind of stressful. Like I feel like she really brings that down to this very calming level where you're learning something and you're having fun learning it and you feel soothed by it. And that is how I would describe our conversation with Lee. Yeah. Like she really thinks intently and intellectually about like why these things are happening and not just how to fix them. Mm-hmm. So she really, you know, seems set up to to create lasting long-term solutions. I completely agree. Please enjoy our conversation with Lee Honeywell. Welcome, Lee. It's great to have you here. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah. And you recommendation from mine and, and Jordan's colleague, Zach Whitaker, who is our beloved security reporter, one of the, the best in the business and a mutual connection. So he, he has nothing but high praise for you. Oh, that's so kind. I've been a huge fan of Zach's security newsletter that he's been publishing for a while. It's a great way to catch up on sort of cybersecurity news that isn't Twitter. Yeah. And Zach's not even paying Lee to do that. This is just like a free promo at the start of the episode. So Zach. Yeah, he didn't pay us either. Zach's pay not us paying either. at all. Zach is free riding. <laughs> <laughs> it's, we're just Zach fans. What can we yeah. say? <laughs> also, I mean, we're thrilled to have you here because, you know, your story is very interesting as a founder, but then also like the company that you've built is focusing on a super, I mean... I was going to say it's topical, but that's like not fair to say because it's kind of always topical, right? Like, I, Man, I, yeah, <laughs> Turns out there's been jerks but... on the internet for a long time. <laughs> no way. Wait, hold on. For, for a few years, at least a few years. <laughs> yeah. Don't spoil the internet for Jordan. She's not aware that there are jerks on it yet. So. Sorry. I live in a bubble. 
<laughs> but Lee, if, if you want to give our listeners just kind of a, a, a taste of what you do and kind of like a high level overview, that would be awesome. Yeah, for sure. So my name is Lee Honeywell. I'm the founder of Tall Poppy. We help organizations, companies, nonprofits, civil society groups protect their staff, employees, community members from online harassment and abuse. We focus on two main things. There's this unfortunate thing, particularly in the States where there's like no privacy laws. So your data ends up spread across all of these really creepy, unnecessary, what are called data broker websites. If you're living in the States and you've never Googled, you know, first name, last name, city name, address, you're in for an, like an unpleasant surprise of just right. like how much data is out there about you. So that's one of our focuses is this sort of personal data, personal privacy problem. And the other piece is account security. You know, anyone who's ever worked at a big organization has been through the like click through the training of like how to keep the company safe from phishing. But there's this other whole set of attack surfaces of vulnerabilities that apply to people's personal accounts. And, you know, as an individual person who uses technology, who has online accounts with various like social media and banks and we were talking about online shopping and online thrifting mm -hmm. earlier, right? Like all of these different places have your username, your password are connected to your various social accounts. And you shouldn't have to be an expert to protect that kind of thing. But particularly if you work in a role like journalism or you're a public health person dealing with like anti-vaxxers, all of these different things that end up with you having a sort of role in the public conversation, you end up exposed and, and sort of personally vulnerable to right. this class of attacks targeting your sort of personal digital infrastructure. And that's that's where we come in. We are sort of <laughs> this running joke of like, I ended up being this like one woman helpline of like, oh, you know, so-and-so is going public with this like Me Too situation. And the journalist would be like, oh, well, let's put them in touch with Lee so that they can talk to her before they go public. And that sort of thing where it's this like, you know, the friend that you call to get the guidance on how to stay safe. And when it's part of your job to be a person in public, there's mm -hmm. this like duty of care that, a, that an organization or company has to protect you in some way. And that's where we come in. We, we provide that protection service both proactively and on an incident response basis sort of when the when the caca hits the fan right you can swear on this podcast jordan does oh, yeah. all the time <laughs> i do it all the time and daryl's little canadian eyes get all big <laughs> oh no <laughs> <laughs> you said a bad word yes yeah exactly we use tall poppy we have to disclose that right yeah yeah we, we should media say is a as a customer of Tall Poppy, I remember hearing it many, many times. Absolutely. I'm glad you guys said it because I'm not supposed to say it, but you're allowed to say it. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> We're allowed to say it. We yeah. say it. I mean, I personally am not, but our corporate parent or whatever is, and we hear about it a lot. And they say, Tall Poppy can help. Yeah. And it's great, actually. Yeah. No, it's been been wonderful to, to get to work with your colleagues. And Verizon has some amazing, amazing security infrastructure and, and teammates. It's really been a, an absolute joy to get to work with your colleagues they keep us on our toes they do like fishing do they do the fake fishing, fishing yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. It's have you guys They're clicked fun. on the fake fishing mails no we're good at it TechCrunch oh, is good. so good at I'm it like i think we report a lot of real stuff no like they're like hey we really need you to log in and deal with this expense report and i'm like fishing i'm not going to touch it yeah don't yeah. send me that expense report one more time it's fishing yeah so i mean this this serves as notice like nobody even don't even try because we got it i'm just having this flashback to so i used to work at Slack. I was on the security team there. I was the third security person at Slack. And we had like a new person who joined, I think, HR or sales or something like a less technical role. And on their like, this poor person, it was like their first week on the job. And they sent out a, you know, Google form or spreadsheet or something to everyone via email or not everyone, but like a few dozen people. And all of a sudden, all of these people flood the security channel. They're like, was this a phishing test? Was this a phishing test? Because nobody used email. It was Slack. Nobody used email at Slack. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> who's, yeah. who's this person sending us an email? Wow. It, it was totally not a phishing email. It was, it was actually just a person who was the organization. Oh my yeah. gosh. But that's good, so right? Like, it, it, it has the right really, reaction. For yeah. Everybody. Yeah. You want, you want people that, that sort of like, that was a big piece of my sort of cultural values at that job and subsequent jobs and definitely in the work we do at Tall Poppy of like, you want the security team to be there, to be approachable, not to be like, oh my gosh, you weren't using a password manager. What <laughs> what were you thinking, right? There's this like feigned surprise, yeah. which is a, a term from a 
There's this thing called the Recurse Center. Have either of you heard of it? No. It's, nope. If you've ever thought of like a writer's retreat, what that would look like if instead of writing, you programmed, that's what oh. the Recurse Center is. It's this like wonderful, wonderful community based in New York. And people go on like a week or a six week or a three month sort of sabbatical to like deepen their practice as a programmer and engineer. And they have these core social values. And one of them is no backseat driving, like don't take away the keyboard from people when you're trying to learn together. One of them is no subtle isms, like don't be racist even in a subtle way, like, you know, be welcoming and equitable to your colleagues, your peers, because everybody's a peer. And one of them is no feigned surprise. Oh my gosh, you like VI versus Emacs? Like that sort of like <laughs> nerd anger right. of like, how do you not know that thing, right? You should know that thing. Right, that's common to fandoms too, right? I think even if you're not like, oh a, like a programmer. You didn't watch episode whatever of so-and-so? Like you no. don't know this character? You don't know the name of that spaceship? Like. <laughs> huge huge science fiction nerd and like I, I i am one of those people that has like the embarrassingly encyclopedic knowledge of certain fandoms which will remain nameless but yeah that that feigned surprise is so prevalent in the work of sort of computer security and it is like my personal mission to stamp it out by just being like relentlessly like kind and supportive and everything that we've done at vzm with all of this stuff, they raise my anxiety so much whenever we do those like meetings or tutorials or whatever they are, because they're like, everyone knows who you are and they're gonna come to your house and they're gonna like kill you and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, that's scary. But, but you should know rather than not know, right? But there, there's a lot of empathy, I feel like yeah, in those. Yeah. Like, I feel like they're really like, we're here to help you. We're gonna like hook you up. Like everything's gonna be okay. Like we got you and just like, Listening to what we have to say is going to help you a lot. It always like brings me back to like, you know, my steady 190 BPM, you know. <laughs> I've got the, the Apple, oh, wait, I figure we're not on video. I'm like waving my Apple watch of monitor. Like, yeah. mean, is, it, is it like a thing where, because when you're talking about the personal vector, right? Like that, okay, your personal life is actually a vector. And maybe was that, is that like a recent, it feels recent to me, but is it not a recent thing? It's just only that we've recently come to think of it that way? Or was there a real before time when people were like, well, work and person are separate. Let's keep those things distinct. So here's my latest theory. We used to have this idea of celebrities versus like, quote unquote, normal people. And with social media, like, I, I don't quite understand how I ended up with 26,000 Twitter followers. Like I've just been posting for 12 or 13 years at this point. <laughs> like, it does do it. Like, 14 years. Oh my God, I've been on Twitter for 14 years. And Somehow there's like 26,000 people and bots and fake accounts and spammers and <laughs> lovely, lovely people Same. who have thought that something I said was funny or interesting and, and thus followed me. And to a tiny slice of people, I am now like, I, I remember when I moved to San Francisco in 2014, I was walking down Townsend, which I feel like TechCrunch used to have an office yeah. mm -hmm. That's right. on Townsend. Okay. I was like walking literally two blocks from the old TechCrunch office and- this woman pulls over in a car and is like, Haley, I love your Twitter. <laughs> and it was really a little terrifying, but also yeah. hilarious. And it, like, it wasn't threatening. It was just this like sweet person who recognized the pink hair off of Twitter. And I, it was literally like three weeks after I moved to San Francisco. Thankfully, it did not happen again in the five years I lived in San Francisco. But it was this moment of like, oh, there's this weird kind of micro fame that is now a thing. And I think that like basically every journalist experiences this. I feel like the threshold is like 10 or 20,000 Twitter followers just in general. So m weird internet microfame is the first part of the theory. The second part of the theory is there's this concept in psychology called a parasocial relationship. If you've ever felt sad when a celebrity died, you've experienced a parasocial relationship. You know, there's this celebrity who exists and you have feelings about their existence they do not know that you exist it's like a, it's a one-way relationship but it's a real like psychological phenomenon it's a real experience you you're having real emotions within that set of however many tens of thousands of people follow each of you on twitter there are people who have that like minor fandom of jordan and minor fandom of daryl and most of them will be completely appropriate if, if they run. It's the whole sort of L.A. thing of like, mm. if you see a celebrity in L.A., you're like not allowed to talk to them, I understand, because it's like the etiquette. 
So most people will follow the etiquette and not be like weird if they run into you on the streets of San Francisco or Toronto. But there's a certain percentage of people, very small percentage, who will not have that sort of like appropriate reaction. And now that everybody is an internet micro celebrity, more people are experiencing this weird failure of the parasocial relationship. Hmm. And I think that's that's the thing that's new, right? Because there's whereas there used to just be like the actually famous people who were like the you know elected politicians and the like actually a tier movie stars and maybe people who wrote for the the top newspapers when people actually got like physical newspapers, right? But you wouldn't have a picture in the newspaper, so they wouldn't know who you are, right? But now like a zillion people have twenty thousand Twitter followers or a million Instagram followers, whatever. So there's this web of relationships, of these parasocial relationships, the frequency at which people will have those inappropriate reactions to the parasocial dynamic. Because there's the specifically the, the inappropriate thing that happens is somebody's like, Jordan, Jordan tweets these awesome things and I follow Jordan. Maybe Jordan replies to me sometimes. Right. And then I'm like, oh, Jordan knows me. Yeah. Jordan doesn't know me from a hole in the wall. But people don't like they they don't get that. They don't parse that correctly. There's like a parsing error. And some of those inappropriate parsings are the like the thing that we're dealing with here around online harassment. There's a whole other set of issues which are more sort of culture war stuff. Right. Which is like who's getting canceled, and I, I don't, I really don't like the term cancel culture, but that that is like the way people talk about some of this stuff is like account how we define accountability in the post Me Too era and all of this stuff. That is another piece of it, but I think a really big piece of it that doesn't get talked about enough is this increased number of vertices in the graph of parasocial relationships. To mm. be kind of mathy about it, and then I guess if you were like if you were a person who was perhaps. If you look around and you see how other people are like kind of interacting with folks and you're like, okay, like I have this urge to perhaps do something that is antisocial, but everything else is sort of normalizing me to not do that because I'm sort of cusp that, right? Whereas online you would be, you would have it reinforced. Like you would look around and see all that antisocial behavior is there for you to see. Like you can see people harassing someone on Twitter and you go, oh, okay. I mean, that looks okay. It must be okay to like right. call this person a racial slur or whatever, right? It normalizes these like really odious behaviors. And I think there's, there's a couple of different pieces in it. One of the pieces is a platform design question. What are the tools that are available? Like when I, if I reply to one of Daryl's tweets and call him some terrible word, what control does Daryl have over the appearance of that that tweet versus like if I comment on one of your Instagram posts and with like a string of expletives, you can just delete that comment. Right. There, There isn't this idea of like deleting a tweet from the replies. Obviously, there's like blocking and muting and there's these certain ways of controlling the sort of user experience. But I think so many of these, there's really interesting questions of like, what is the design of these platforms? How does it amplify or squelch antisocial behavior? And what are the tools that are available to both content creators, people who have a big megaphone, or also like people who are participating in these conversations? And I, I remember like circa 2011, we had this whole real names conversation around Google Plus and Google being like, everybody must use a real name. That is the thing, you know, the, the name that is in their on their government issued ID, which is definitely their only real name or real identity. Yeah. Right. Like we saw it with Facebook too. And Facebook has to a certain degree stuck with that policy. And yet the number of times that I've seen people post like horrifying stuff with their like comment system that's logged in on Facebook. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think we, at this point, I really hope that we can sort of put the, the like, put the idea to rest that real names are going to be the thing that saves us from online hate. Like it's just, it's not, it's not happening. No. Right. So then there's a question of like, what will save us? And I, I mean, it's almost a cliche to make this reference, but there's this like seminal computer science paper of no silver bullets that was literally written in like the seventies about like the IBM 360. And it's no silver bullets. There's there's no sort of shortcuts to mm. doing content moderation. And I think the like whether it's human moderators, whether it's you know you just sprinkle a little bit of AI on it, you you can't actually do that. There's so right. much like subtlety and context to what is hate, what is threatening to people, and so what ends up being the like 
set of solutions that as an individual, how can I interact with this platform? How can I interact with technology more broadly? I sort of come back to like, what can I control myself about how I interact with technology? My relationship to these sort of interactions. I, it's so funny. I had, um, I feel like, you know, I've been working on online harassment issues for coming up on like 13, 14 years, about as long as I've been on Twitter, ironically. <laughs> and I'm usually pretty good at like the, you know, being funny without being, somebody walked up to me at a conference and was like, Lee, I love your Twitter. You're funny without being offensive. And I'm like, that is my brand. Like, that's what I'm going for. I, I want to be God, funny. I, I want to like. I want to do that too. How do you do that? I just stopped. Hard. Well, okay. I stopped trying I to be funny for fear of being offensive. The trick is to punch up and to be very precise. This is my, my, one of my like key rules in life is like if i find myself like oh i know that word is like kind of deprecated because it's like kind of a racial slur but it's one that people don't like recognize as a racial slur but like what is the thing i'm actually trying to address in using this term that i know actually has like a racist origin to it or whatever it's like oh i'm trying to express that i want to ensure transparency or this person robbed me, like, right? There's all of these sort of words mm -hmm. that people are like, oh, that's, you know, no big deal, but it's actually like super offensive right? under the hood. The answer is always to be more precise, whether, and the same applies to like taking ableist language out of your sort of discourse. Like if you wanted to say like that thing is crazy, yeah. you actually mean that thing is like unreasonable or like it's always about the precision. And I think that that applies to humor too, is like, what is the... What is the thing that I'm trying to like light up here and being being precise about that thing is my that's my like life hack of not being offensive. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I, which um, it's it's funny because sometimes in the sort of discourse and we have this whole thing going on with like Basecamp right now, the tech company that's like, we don't have politics anymore. Yes. And depending on when this might air, people might be like, what? But please go oh, back man. and check it out because it was it was, it was ridiculous. It's, you know, for folks who followed the Coinbase thing, it's like Coinbase V2, right? Yes. And luckily, Brian Armstrong chimed in, which is great. It's just great to see <laughs> yeah, him back just, it up. <laughs> yeah. I had a point and I, I lost it because I'm <laughs> so know, like, deflated by this, this, this situation. Oh, yeah. So part of the base camp thing is like, it, it's really hard to have these nuanced conversations in the workplace. Like... Don't be racist. Apparently, that's a hard conversation. And you know, right. I have to sort of give people the credit of like, I do literally have an undergraduate degree in what I call ISM studies. It's a program at the University of Toronto called Equity Studies. I did mm -hmm. a double major in computer science and equity studies. And sometimes I, when people are like, oh, what did you do your, your degree? And I don't clarify that it's like equity, like equality, not like finance. Sometimes I just like let them think it's I'm not actually good with spreadsheets, but maybe I just let them think I'm good with spreadsheets. <laughs> Self-deprecating is always a good way to go, as long as you're not like reinforcing stereotypes. And how did this turn into the like we explain comedy hour? <laughs> like we, we, this is the master class. The basics of how to be well. funny on Twitter. <laughs> going to teach you how to be a stand-up. <laughs> If you're listening to Found, you're probably already super interested in startups and the overall startup ecosystem. So we've got a great deal for you. We're going to offer you 50% off either a one-year or a two-year subscription to Extra Crunch. Extra Crunch is TechCrunch's premium product offering. And when you go there, you'll get deep dive interviews with some of the top founders in the industry. You'll get market maps on specific verticals and some of the most exciting areas of growth in startup land. You'll also get uh, surveys of some of the top VCs in different areas, including different geographies. So you can subscribe to Extra Crunch at extracrunch.com. That's probably the easiest way. Or if you're already on TechCrunch, follow the links for Extra Crunch and you'll get a prompt to subscribe and then just enter that code that's found, the name of this podcast, during checkout and you'll get 50% off on either a one-year or a two-year subscription. So the point of the the point of the like I sometimes manage to be funny on Twitter is I had a really like negative Twitter interaction recently where I like somebody made a joke about death panels and I was like actually they you know they were really doing triage in LA at one point during the pandemic and it it turned into this whole thing and we ended up like having a conversation and like de-escalating things but it was like this person just got like really mad at me mm. and I was like oh it was actually like she was actually just making a joke and I missed the joke. I completely missed the joke. Right. 
And it could have totally like become a thing. It was one of those moments where the conversation like could have blown up and I could have become the main character of the internet. Oh yeah. Which, you know, the goal of using Twitter is to never be the main character. That's right. Of the day. Yeah. And today's main character, I guess this week, the main character is Basecamp and the goal is to not be that. So it, but it was just this reminder of, you know, some of this stuff is actually like just difficult, the sort of nuance of online communication and the failure modes of this difficulty of having nuanced conversations, unfortunately ends up, sometimes it wades into this like culture war territory. Sometimes it wades into the sort of personalization of these conversations. And sometimes it touches the sort of third rails of like, oh, you're actually, you know, you made this joke and all of a sudden all the Nazis are mad at you. Mm, Right. And now you have to deal with like that set of people and their particular set of like tactics of like yelling at your employer and posting your home address. And there's these sort of playbooks that in, in many years of observing people getting in arguments on the internet, you sort of end up identifying these playbooks and patterns of, oh, this is how the alt-right gets mad at people on the internet. And this is how the anti-vaxxers, they love doxing people. Right. Right. They love Photoshopping people's kids. It's awful. It's just awful, like nasty. And yeah, that's our, unfortunately, that's our bread and butter is like helping protect people against these, these different abusive patterns of conversation that sometimes start with the most like innocuous nonsense yeah that gets like blown up yeah and it can be like a misinterpretation of the source it can be i mean it can be anything right but like the and we deal with it too obviously in the newsroom right and and we there's been times and i this isn't the right way to handle it i don't think but i mean there's definitely been times where people have said like oh i should cover this thing and i'll be like well maybe you shouldn't cover that thing because a community is going to specifically target and attack you worse than it would me, for instance, if it's like interchangeable, if if, like we both have time right now, maybe I should do it just to, to take the heat. Right. Which is awful. Like it's awful that we even have to do that, but it's also, it was also a product of like, kind of like seeing this emerge and being unsure with how to deal with it. And like, it's great that you and, and other people in the field are actually coming up with like real viable playbooks that don't, sideline people that don't mean people have to like stay out of the conversation which is awful right so much of like my goal as a founder and building tools and building services is around making sure that people who want to participate in public life and public discourse are able to because i think we see this you know i remember in the the 2018 and 2020 election campaigns in the states there were multiple reports of candidates dropping out because the threats that they were experiencing were so bad mm-hmm. and that is like that is so deeply toxic to the basic premise of democracy that like you could literally be like threatened off of the electoral stage right. and whether it's that or the scenario that you identified of like choosing who gets to report on an issue or folks self-selecting out of reporting on things. One of the ways you see that so starkly is if you have two bylines on an article and it's, you know, a person who's underrepresented and a person who's not, and who does the hate get directed at Mm -hmm. for, you know, the same piece of writing. Although that can actually be like, if the, the person who is less marginalized ends up like tanking a little bit, tanking being the sort of like video game thing, oh. this is the person with really high HP and they're going to like go to bat to take the damage so that the other person can like sneak through the mission. That's like one of the sort of tactics in thinking about things like sharing bylines is like, how do you elevate one person, maybe like have there be support from a community of peers to be able to like spread that damage around a little bit so Mm. that it's more survivable to everyone, which sounds like it sounds really sort of brutal to put it in those terms, but it actually like, these are the ways we get through this stuff. These are the ways we make it more survivable. It is so like survival is the word for it, right? Like, and that makes me kind of sad. Like it it feels like so much is not like, it's not proactive, right? Like it just feels so like, we're just like all hanging on. Like I, I, I feel like I've I've written less opinion-based articles in the, like, over time. And a lot of that has to do with my job changing and not, you know, getting to write as much as I would like to. But, like, you just learn after a few times, you know. If you get one that's a little crooked, crooked opinion out there, 
And you're just like, okay, I don't want to play that and, game. And God forbid you make a mistake, like a factual error, and then the whole internet, like, you know, we've we've had fact checkers, and some publications don't have fact checkers anymore for budget reasons, but also people just like make sincere mistakes, right. and it's not it's not fake news to actually just like misread something or make a typo in a statistic, right? And and then you see people getting fired over that kind of thing, and it's just like come on this is you know nobody's perfect in doing doing these jobs yeah yeah but that's like that like what jordan said like we've both seen it so personally right like you see you were talking about how it sounds grim to describe that way but it's not it's not it's appropriate to it because you see the effect it has on people and it's it's very bad like it's a it's a terrible effect and it has a tremendous impact on people's lives when they're on the receiving end of that kind of thing right so I've never heard that analogy before. I think that's a really good one for like thinking about the video game squad and then having like, you know, yeah, the tank character and the like the whatever, the defender character, the support characters. Like that makes a lot of sense for for how you kind of like distribute roles in a team. I worked with some folks who were coming forward about a like serial abuser situation in a sort of esoteric programming community. And it actually the the post just came out today. And a thing that I thought was really, really powerful, there were these two women that came forward but there was also an open letter from other people in the community who either specifically corroborated like particular pieces of the like this person was an asshole to this person at the conference and I was there and I witnessed it or just saying like we believe these two women that sort of like people talk a lot about like allyhood and stuff but that I mean it was such a concrete show of support and expression of like you know, we believe you, we believe your experience, and we're not going to stand by this behavior in our community. It was, I like, I was a little choked up when I saw it go public. Mm. It was just like, it was such a powerful statement of like, we stand behind you. This has been great talking about Talpapi and like kind of the, the problems you're addressing, but I do want to get to kind of how you got there to begin with, because it's obviously very needed. You know, like how did you decide to create this company and to focus on this problem yourself? So I'd been thinking for a number of years that there was a need in this space. There was sort of a gap in what was out there in terms of cybersecurity. We've had all this innovation in the last 10, 20 years around sort of the cybersecurity of businesses and you know how we build more secure operating systems and all this stuff. I, mean, I can't see it on video but like <laughs> I'm you know holding up my iPhone it costs literally like a million dollars to hack into this iPhone right. and that's you know that's an incredible achievement it costs a million dollars to break into fully patched chrome because these companies and these communities have invested all of this like money and infrastructure into securing the sort of like basic infrastructure of our day-to-day lives we even think of like what happened with Zoom last spring when the pandemic hit. I think of like the Al-Anon groups and stuff moving to Zoom and Zoom having to deal with this like whole Zoom bombing problem mm-hmm. and like this, you know, the steps that they took and they did their like 90 day security push and all of these things. Hired Alex Stamos, who's also ex Yahoo Verizon. And at the same time, like these are all sort of systems level and corporate, right? It's the the email antivirus or the how to secure your AWS, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, I think about, I have my password manager with 400 different accounts in it. And like, it's literally my job to be a cybersecurity expert. So I've, you know, put some thought into how to secure all of those different systems. But the average person who gets an email claiming to be from FedEx and they have to fill out this form, it wasn't actually FedEx, right? right? Like, how do we as individual humans who are just like using technology, how do we keep ourselves safe? And the the sort of contextual connection to the, the problem of online harassment is that like, I can't stop people from yelling at you on Twitter. That's like not actually in my control. But one of the most severe ways that the yelling escalates is by hacking into your online accounts. Mm-hmm. And when I say hacking, it's it's actually usually just the passwords that you used in the past. You know, if whatever password you had on LinkedIn in 2013, like miscreants definitely now have that password. So, you know, what are the places where some, you know, neo-Nazi that decides that he doesn't like Jordan how is he going to target her and how can we keep her safe? What are the things that we can do to at an individual level, keep people safe. And, you know, things like password managers, two-factor authentication, these are the tools that we have, but they feel sort of opaque and inaccessible, I Mm -hmm. think, to a lot of people. 
And our focus is really like making them more understandable, helping motivate people. Because I think a lot of this comes down to people sort of freeze up and they think there's nothing I can do about this like intractable problem, but it's actually like quite tractable. There's like very specific concrete things that we can all do that make us safer in the same way as like you, you got to teach people how to wash their hands properly, apparently. Like, and now my Apple Watch yells at me if I don't wash my hands for a full 20 seconds, which is a long time. I had to turn like, that off. Real. That's <laughs> so long. It's, it's so annoying. It's, when I'm like doing the dishes, it goes on. And I'm like, oh, yeah, God, yeah. my it's hands like are already clean. It's like random stuff too. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, no, man, not now. I'm unpacking these, like, I just moved. So I'm unpacking boxes and the crinkly paper sets. <laughs> so if you tell off. me to stand one more time, like, yeah. I, I hate my Apple Watch. <laughs> I, like I hate it, but I love it. It's yeah, same. It's a very complex such a, relationship. Like, such a silly digression, but my Apple Watch is my replacement for Windows Phone because I still am like mourning the loss of Windows Phone. Because when I picked up my Windows Phone, it had my calendar on it, and I can't live without my calendar. It was very beautiful Windows Phone. I really liked. So I like the tiles based interface. Too good for this world. Yeah. Sometimes I like to go back and watch old episodes of Scandal because they use Windows Phone. So did um, my absolute favorite show in the whole world, The Good Wife. Oh, yes. But there were like several seasons where they were 100% Windows Phone. They must, Microsoft must went big had. on that. They really did. They were like, we're going to yeah. get Windows Phone out there. It's yeah. going to be in every show you see. It was a valiant effort. It was a good, it was a good try. Yeah. This is a good conversation. <laughs> Wait, hold on. I want to go back to Tall Poppy because I feel like one of the genius bits of it is that the product is really focused on like personal and individual accounts, but you have gone through businesses yeah, in order to do that. Cause no one, like you said, like most people say like, oh, you know, I might get hacked and that would be scary. Or really it's not even, I might get hacked. It's like, oh, something really terrible happened to me on the internet. I should probably do something about that. And by that point it's kind of like too late and it really sucks and it feels overwhelming and they're stressed. And like no one thinks proactively about this stuff. Right. So you're like you've essentially found a way in. But no, no one's also going to spend their own personal resources on it, right? Like they could, but it's not like until something bad's happened. Yes. And then you're like, oh, I'll spend a lot to like never let that happen again because that was literally terrible. Yeah. There's definitely there's this huge user education piece around like how do we get individual consumers, individual humans to be thinking proactively about security, and I think the sort of medium medium to longer term version of that is going to end up having to be some sort of like regulation or like some sort of government meddling and interference because it, it is this like public health level issue of whether it's account takeovers or password reuse, all of these things. But yeah, the, the sort of key insight that we had was, you know, if you're facing harassment in the course of your job, in the course of just like doing your job, whether you're a journalist or developer relations is one of the ones where we saw just a lot of like, it's literally your job to like go to conferences and tweet a lot about whatever tech thing that your company does. And people were dealing with just like the creepiest stalkers and like bizarre harassment and people getting fixated and stuff like that and, and feeling so vulnerable. And that was our sort of insight was Let's build something that companies can provide to their employees rather than relying on sort of the individual. Let's actually sort of collectively protect a set of people for whom this is an increased risk. And often it ends up being sort of a, a media thing. Newsrooms is a big one. Sometimes it's other kinds of content production like movie studios. Another surprising one that we've run into a couple of times in in, in recent months is actually like health related, whether it's people, the sort of anti-vax thing happening, and then the masks, the 5G truthers going after like really extremely mundane companies that you would not expect, but that are like installing cell phone towers right. or stuff like that, right? Where you're like, all of a sudden there's this set of intersections of the sort of existence of your organization and people on the internet with too much time on their hands who are stuck at home and are getting like real mad. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and being able to to work to protect folks who are in that sort of convergence of circumstances has ended up being a really like powerful part of what we've been doing. Well and you could see how people would take like like you said, like all that time and just like find new targets for their illusions, I guess, right? But like I can see it personally because this is always the confessional hour, but like Jordan knows this very well about me. I buy too many things online, but like, I'm always like, 
ridiculously <laughs> expensive things that he does not need. This is the best thing about moving back to Canada. There's just a lot less stuff on Instagram that I want to buy. <laughs> yeah, like, that's right. There's just like, I haven't bought yoga pants off Instagram since I moved here. <laughs> but see, I could still find it, even though there's less. But like, I'm always looking for a different novel thing, right? And then if you added more time to it, right, you become even more, you're like, well, let's go deeper down this and like find just like totally random small shops. And normally for me, that expresses in like, great, I support a local merchant or whatever, right? Like it's not a, not a bad outcome necessarily for them, but like for people who are, have these like antisocial tendencies, that means that there's a whole host of new targets. Like you no longer even, even the microfam thing you were talking about doesn't even apply anymore. It's like, I'm going to apply some twisted logic to find a new novel target for my kind of like urges or whatever. Right. Yeah. And I think the, like, so much of this comes down to control too, right? If it's not the sort of microfame dynamic, it's the like a person who's dealing with the the reality of the past year's awfulness. Often folks are looking for like a thing that they can control. Right. And there's a set of people for whom like, I'm going to make this person feel bad. I'm going to like be mean to this person online and that's going to make me feel like a bigger person. Mm-hmm. It's a way of maintaining some kind of tiny amount of control over the universe in the same way as we get people like, yelling at target employees because they don't want to wear a mask or whatever right like there's people are lashing out because they have so little control over their lives right now because we're in a global pandemic Mm. excuse my french like as awful as it is it's like an understandable sort of psychological failure mode of you're gonna like lash out because you feel like you don't have control it's so exhausting to try to always like respond with compassion and i have had a few friends on Facebook who've gone off the sort of deep end of anti-vax and stuff and trying to it's 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 like trying to maintain a connection to someone who's in an abusive relationship without sort of just being the dumping ground of like my partner did this terrible thing to me again and being like oh I'm sorry to hear that like let me comfort you versus like that sounds really terrible like I'm going to keep a connection but I'm not going to like enable by being sort of a sink of this, like these bad feelings. And I think when folks get down that sort of radicalization path, whether it's anti-vax or the like QAnon stuff, it's, you know, the amount of labor required to to de-radicalize someone who's gone down that path is like, it's, it's shocking how hard it is. Yeah. And so you end up having two things be really important. One, noticing the early signs and sort of inoculating people to the sort of like, hey, you know, there's this misinformation going around. Like if someone tries to get you to read this thing, it's probably this agenda. Like what is the underlying agenda here? And then there's also the sort of speaking to the audience, right? Early on, someone I know actually from Toronto posted Plandemic on Facebook and I was like, hey, this is this is really not cool. Mm. This is not cool. There's like people are actually dying. It's not it's not fake. Mm -hmm. There's there's actually a ton of people dying and there's that pushback sort of like, how do you maintain the lifeline, but also make sure that you're sort of pushing back to say, like, we can't normalize this without wasting your own personal resources as well. Not like that. It's a waste, but like we only have so much we can give to things. Right. You know what I mean? Like we only have so much energy. We know from the research that there's a very narrow set of circumstances under which de-radicalization ever works. Yeah. Right. So that's where like, you know, this person in Toronto that posted pandemic, like we weren't tight, but we had a lot of social overlap. So I needed to just say like, hey, this is not cool. Almost for our sort of common friends, more so than for her. Yeah. I mean, we've all, I'm sure that everyone listening to it had similar interactions. I personally had the experience where you're like, I don't, I don't know what to do. Like, I can't, there's nothing I can do that's additional here that could help. And it's so heartrending because yes. you know who that person used to be. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, there's this alien speaking in the shape of your friend who used to be like, you used to go to raves with in like the 2000s. Yeah. Daryl loves raves. I just love going to raves and I want to go back to the raves. To, I've never been to raves. Before QAnon. The closest I've come is probably TechCrunch like parties for events or whatever, which sometimes. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> oh, no. I just see you being like the tallest guy, but like not having like, any oh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty accurate. I did want to talk, Lee, like specifically just raising money for this. Was it something that 
did you have to do a lot of convincing or did you, did you find people like, oh, like this is something that is definitely a problem and is definitely investable? You have a pretty sick resume, right? Yeah. So like that had oh, to help. thank you. <laughs> that, I mean, that definitely, that definitely helped. I think the folks that are on our cap table by and large are folks who, you know, one, believe in the existence of the problem. I think that's a, a key thing where there's a set of folks who are like, eh, maybe it's actually just fine that people are jerks on the internet. Like that's just inherent to the internet. VCs probably go through that micro fame para, para, what was it again? Oh, I don't man. want to I mean, say parasite. Parasocial. I feel like v- parasocial relationships. Yeah. I feel like VCs have like a particular version of it that they experience where you're not just micro famous to your 100,000 Twitter followers, but many of your 100,000 Twitter followers want something very specific right. from you, which is capital. Yeah, it's different dynamic. They're not, it feels like no one's really getting all that mad at VCs on Twitter, except for journalists, which is why we're all blocked. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the, man, this is, there's the margins of the last couple minutes are not sufficient. <laughs> Yeah, I I mean, I think I've actually said this in a couple of like clubhouse conversations and stuff where there's this, I think a lot of VCs have this expectation of a very particular kind of captive trade press. And that is their, the extent of their understanding of journalism. Right. And when they are faced with like, even mildly adversarial press, it's like very confronting. Yeah. Like, who is this, who does this person think they are reporting on my portfolio company? Right versus the sort of like recycling of PR pitches various outlets over the years have been have been you can say to it. and it's fine. <laughs> TechCrunch has done some of that impact. Call them out. It, TechCrunch is very much not alone in doing that, right? right? Yeah. But and that is the sort of ecosystem, a big d- part of the dynamic of the Valley media ecosystem is this like sort of hagiographic, like the founder yep. thing. And VCs are part of that and founders are part of that. And when you don't have sort of challenges to that power dynamic, it, it it can end up being pretty toxic, I think. And that's how you end up with, instead of like people wanting to engage in good faith, like blocking journalists on Twitter or Clubhouse or whatever. Yeah, at the slightest provocation. But I, I definitely think it's like, Initially, there was a it was a kind of like a hobby almost to cover the valley, right? Like especially the startup focused stuff. Like you know, uh, Arrington over on our side did it, and then I used to work for Ohm, who kind of like followed Arrington and did the same thing. And like then it became mainstream. And I think when that transition to mainstream happened is when the break happened. Like people were just like, "Oh, wait a minute!" Like, well, and all the tech companies grew up too. Yeah. And then when they grew up, they also became part of, quote, like the mainstream with the the good and bad that comes with it, right? Like they weren't all little darlings anymore. They were the Facebooks and the Googles and the... But they still deeply self-identified with this like scrappy underdog thing. Yes. Yeah. Right? Do like, no evil, so, right? Like, do no evil or the, you know, the fishbowl office and, yeah. and Palo Alto at Facebook HQ, right? Like all of these things are so... It's it's an identity thing rather than being like a rational part of the conversation. It's totally irrational. And I know so many billionaires personally who still have that mindset and you're just like, (laughs) it's quite the name. What are you talking about? There was one, (laughs) this is, I'm not going to name names, but I'm going to describe the story in such detail that if someone would like to go find names, they're able to. (laughs) I saw a, hundred millionaire let's say recently post on twitter that they were being bullied by a large brand because they were about to start a competitive company and that brand was like blocking their mutual suppliers and they're like go go underdogs and i was like is it bullying if it's like a a like commercial transaction like what words have meanings yeah words have meanings (laughs) and also the person in question could have bought this competitor giant company a hundred times over and then just shut them down or put oh, their incredible. name on the the building. Like it, it was a totally absurd. And it was like, I don't understand how you can get away with this in your brain. Like, But, but it's definitely a thing. Like they, this is a thing that happens frequently. I mean, they ingrain that identity and they don't abandon it. They don't evolve it. Right. They're just like, yeah. I feel like we're making it hard for me to book people for Disrupt right now. I think we should circle back. <laughs> I'm getting anxiety. The, the semiotics of the Valley's relationship with the press. That's a whole, that's a whole thing. Anyway, yeah. Zuck, please come on the show. 
<laughs> yeah, VCs, we love to have you in disruption. You're great. But obviously not all VCs are like that because no. people invested in you, right? Like, and understood the problem. And No, it would be unfair to even paint all hundred millionaires and billionaires with that brush. There's some good ones in there. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think it, it actually speaks to the, the like very different motivations that people come into, whether it's angel investing or seed stage or like quote unquote VC that you know there there are a lot of folks for whom it is the sort of like they want to identify the next uber and they don't you know they are not interested in the sort of moral and ethical nuances of what it means to disrupt and you know who gets harmed in the process and all of those things versus oh, i always feel like so corny and i'm like what is the, the the slightly gentler version of capitalism that like maybe we're actually doing good here by trying to support people who are facing online abuse, often in the context of their work and often in the context of being marginalized themselves. So it's it's complicated. It's definitely, definitely complicated. All right, Jordan. So that was a heck of a conversation with Lee. There were huge spans of that conversation where I was just like, I'm just sitting back and trying to absorb so much of this. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, it was kind of like being back in university in like a very good way, in the best possible way. Like your favorite class, for sure. Yes. And like, I didn't feel like I had a lot to add, but I felt good about it. Like, I was like, that's a good thing in this situation because I'm here to learn and she's a great teacher. I f- do feel like my anxiety levels went up and down as we were talking. She's very soothing, right. but we're also talking about topics that were relatively stressful. But overall, I feel good. I'm glad we I'm glad we did it and I feel better for it. I think she does a really good job of sort of like also seeing it from the perspective of even people who are on the other side. It's amazing the degree of empathy that she has. And I think that's what makes her so good at tackling this particular challenge. Yeah, I'm envious of it, to be honest. Yeah, I have no empathy, which is why... uh... We're the apathy (laughs) twins over here. Why you hate me? (laughs) Why we hate each other? (laughs) Oh, God. Escalated quicker. (laughs) You want to listen to this podcast some more? (laughs) But seriously, do come back next week. (laughs) And also... Go on to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating to celebrate just how much you love the antipathy that me and Jordan share and the great conversations, the great energy that our guests bring to the show, which we lack. Do it for them. (laughs) Seriously. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch News Editor Daryl Eddington, and TechCrunch Managing Editor Jordan Crook. We are produced and mixed by Ashad Kulkarni, and TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Our guest this week was Lee Honeywell, co-founder and CEO of Tall Poppy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash found. Also, you can email us at found at techcrunch.com. And thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.